Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. We'll be switching things up a little bit today. My name is Katie Nockin Hopkins, and I am co-creator and producer of Iron Butterfly, and today I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Paige started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later, she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This episode, we are lucky enough to be joined by Yannicky Cates. Yannicky Cates is a national security consultant drawing on her nearly 18-year career in government, where she was known for expanding missions and growing diverse workforces. Yannicky started at the CIA as an analyst, focusing on foreign space programs. As an analytic manager, she led a variety of teams across directorates that focused on foreign weapon systems, counterproliferation, and counterintelligence. Yannicky also served in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, ODNI, where she oversaw multiple technical analyses of alternatives to inform ODNI's budget build. In addition, Yannicky was an intelligence briefer to executives at the Department of State and National Security Council, an editor for the President's Daily Brief, and served as the Executive Assistant to the Deputy Director of National Intelligence during a presidential transition. Most recently, she served as a Director of Government Affairs for Intelligence Programs at Northrop Grumman. Yannicky, welcome to Iron Butterfly. We are so excited to have you with us today. I'm so excited and honored to be here. Thank you so much. Well, we are honored to have you. So to kick us off, um, we know that you have just a fascinating life, personal and professional, and we'd love for you to tell us a little bit about how the child, a child of diplomats found her way into the intelligence community. That yes, it is often um, a story that I, I question of how um, how a child of diplomats ended up working for the host country's security service. But, um, so I was born in DC. My um, my parents were originally from Sri Lanka. They um, left the country kind of in in their twenties um, because with the changeover in government, there was a war going on. Um, and had my sisters in England, and then my dad worked for the World Bank. So I was born at Georgetown University and um, grew up just outside. Um, and then in 1987, um, there was an election happening in Sri Lanka, and my parents moved me back there. Um, and it was a very um, difficult time in Sri Lanka's history. Um, I was young, so I, I remember things like being um, getting to stay at my favorite resort for a week. And then later in life, I found out that we got to stay for a week because we were locked in because there was too much violence and, and fighting happening outside. Or I remember having classes in my living room um, and my teacher would come over every day. And, uh, and that was because my school had too many bomb scares. Um, so they had to close for six months. And uh, so 
I have to say that gave me a lot of resilience um, for when I, you know, my kids had to go through COVID. Um, I just kind of thought, this is nothing, folks. You have internet. Um, <laughs> you know, we have. And, um, and uh, while, while COVID is scary, um, you know, the, the violence of that time was, was also very scary. Um, we did come back to the U.S. Um, and I was lucky enough to have a phenomenal education. Um, my dad was going to send me off to college in the U.K. along with the rest of the family. And um, I begged and pleaded to stay. And um, so he said, okay, fine, you can apply to MIT, Harvard, and Princeton, which were the schools that he thought were acceptable. <laughs> and if you get into one, you can stay. And thank goodness, um, MIT accepted me. Um, so I kind of broke the mold of my family. My whole family were economists and accountants. And I said, I want to be an engineer. Um, so I went to MIT and I became an engineer. Um, I did aerospace engineering. Um, and it was quite a juxtaposition between my freshman year and senior year. My freshman year was, you know, 98, height of the dot-com era. Um, companies were throwing resumes at even the freshmen or throwing like uh, prizes at even the freshmen to get our resumes um, because everybody just wanted to hire an engineer. Um, and then my senior year, the career fair was one week after 9-11. And, um, and that was a huge turning point, clearly. I really dug deep and, um, and found that my experiences in Sri Lanka helped me to be a, a guiding force and a, um, helping my friends who had never been attacked on their homeland to say, like, this is going to be okay. We're going to get through this and, and um, you know, our country is going to, is resilient and we'll get through it. Um, and sure enough, we have. And, um, I was going through um, looking for jobs. I did not want to stay for grad school because I I wanted to decide what my real passion was before I, I went into a graduate program. And um, I kept apl applying to jobs at like Northrop and Boeing and um, the big aerospace companies and, and kept getting kicked out of interviews. And I couldn't understand why until somebody um, from Aerospace Corporation kind of clued me in and they said, do people suddenly have to like catch a flight or cut your interview off short? And I said, yes, like I'm so personable, right? Like Usually when I get to an interview, like it's, you know, it's not that common that you have engineers that can like carry a conversation. <laughs> and, um, I usually do pretty well. And he said, nobody thinks you're gonna clear. And sure enough, um, yeah. that was the first question that people would ask. They would say, are you, do you have family overseas? And I would say, yeah, like most of my family was still in Sri Lanka. I had a sister living in Pyongyang, working for the UN. And I had a sister living in Tehran, married to an Iranian. <laughs> and, um, it was, and, you know, my parents were here on a diplomatic visa. Like it was not looking good for me. And then one day in the um, early morning, uh, the CIA called me in my dorm room and I still remember I was in my PJs and um, my, who was going to be my future boss, he called and, and said, I'd like to interview you. And I have no idea. He doesn't have any idea how he got my resume, just landed on his desk. <laughs> and um, he interviewed me um, then and there. And I had a conditional offer um, FedEx to me the next day. <laughs> and um, 
And then I thought, you know, I'll just do this for a couple of years, get my clearance and then go to like, you know, a big aerospace company. And 18 years later, I finally left. <laughs> um, um, it was it was a wild ride. I loved every minute of it. That is such an amazing story. And and I especially love just hearing about how your kind of upbringing and background and the time that you spent in Sri Lanka and your experiences there kind of gave you a perspective on national crises, various national crises in, in the U.S., which I think is really amazing. So, you know, <laughs> we kind of fast forwarded from day zero to, you know, year 18, but I'd love to know, you know, what the in-between kind of looked like, right? I mean, I know you had the opportunity to spend some time across various different directorates and in various roles throughout the agency and throughout the community. You know, how did, what did, what did that 18 years look like for you? Um, yeah, I tried to make the most of it. So I, you know, I kind of, in my career, really followed the mantra of um, take opportunities as they come. And, um, and I would always have like multiple five year plans. Um, and I would think about how each job would like fit into the narrative of how I was developing myself. Um, so I started as a um, space and counter space analyst. There was less of the counter space back then because we were still kind of discovering what what was happening in space. Um, I still remember people asking, they were like, oh, we still do that? Because it was past the Cold War. Um, you know, we didn't have the great space race anymore. And, uh, but, but space was still really important. And I felt like I was a voice to say, hey, you know, other countries are making use of space just as much as we are, and they are developing things that we should be concerned about. Um, and uh, in fact, I, I ended up going to grad school while working um, at Georgetown. I did my um, master's in security studies and I did my thesis on the distrust in space and how um, it didn't matter what we were going to do. Uh, the, um, our adversaries were going to think that we were far more capable than we actually were and develop their systems to that thought. And here we are almost 20 years later, and sure enough, that is exactly what is happening. Um, so I, I also really love that I worked on um, a non-mainstream account. Um, you know, of course, in that era, everything was about terrorism and, you know, or nuclear weapons. Um, and But I loved that working on space really helped me develop my critical thinking skills. And it really helped me understand who my customers were um, and what their needs were. Because in government, you know, most of our policymakers have a vast portfolio that they have to be concerned about. And to get them to focus on this one little area for a period of time, you really have to prove to them why that's so important. Or, you know, as we say in, in directorate of analysis speak, the so what. And I got really good at, at trying to prove the so what and why my customers needed to take the time to pay attention to me. Um, let's see, while I was an analyst, I, I tried to also get really involved in corporate activities. Um, so I would do a lot of recruiting. I would um, get really involved in um, uh, employee resource groups and because um, I really wanted to ch help kind of find a place for myself in this large organization. Um, and I also really got into leadership development because I've always thought that um, it's really important for 
everybody at every level to take on a leadership role and to better their environment. That's kind of my definition of a leader, somebody who doesn't just complain, but looks around and says, okay, what can I do better? So I did a lot of, I took a lot of those opportunities, which really afforded me the opportunity to meet people in more senior roles and uh, who offered me a lot of guidance and thoughts about what are different types of opportunities that I could take on. Uh, So through that, I was able to uh, become a briefer for uh, my whole office to go down to the National Security Council and Department of State and, and present much broader than just space, uh, uh, things across the weapons and counterproliferation world. And I got to think about what kind of a leader I wanted to be. And I think I decided pretty early on that I wanted to get into management because I really wanted to develop other analysts to do a really good job. So I went over and I became a manager of UAVs and cruise missiles. And so it was still within the aerospace realm, but a little bit um, out of my area of expertise since I hadn't done air breathers for multiple years at that point and um, got to work with an incredible group of people. Um, I still, all the people that I've managed, I still love um, keeping in touch with them and seeing how they've grown. And I got so much satisfaction out of helping them succeed at their careers and um, and onboarding new people and helping them find their, their right fit. Um, when I had my first baby, I had the fortune of um, being called up to the front office of our of our large office to do leadership development and help grow managers across the whole office to help them grow their people um, and make sure that we have this huge cadre. And I think that program worked so well because if you look across the agency now, there are so many leaders across all the different directorates that started in, um, back then it was called WIMPAC, the Weapons um, Intelligence Nonproliferation Arms Control Center. (laughs) Very long. (laughs) Um, But uh, I I really loved that job and being able to get a view of how, you know, a corporate board functions and and what that decision process is and kind of more the um, executive view of of management. Um, And then from there, I got to meet um, some folks in the Directorate of Operations, and there was um, a position open where I got to work with targeting analysts, with um, a group of analysts that sat in a larger organization within the DO, and um, helped them focus on who were the major players that were proliferating weapons of mass destruction. And um, so I really got to understand more about how the Directorate of Operations works. Um, As my boss there said, he taught me how to think deviously, which um, I absolutely love. And because it is, it's a different mindset. It's a different way to think about what are different ways that we can collect information or prevent these transactions from happening using the best of government. It was a real whole of government environment. Um, And it was so exciting. We did it at the time where um, Syria was really kind of at the forefront. Um, I got to go brief the director, it was Director Brennan at the time um, on a 
near weekly basis. Um, it was just a really exciting time. And then, um, and in the midst of that, I had my second child. <laughs> um, and then I ended up um, getting another um, phone call. You always get these like random phone calls on a Friday afternoon, you know, from your office director that says, come please see me. You're like, oh God, <laughs> opportunity to excel. <laughs> um, and sure enough, it was another phone call. Um, and it was the same boss who um, had brought me up to the front office before. And he was now the deputy DNI. So I went to go work for the deputy DNI, um, and he needed somebody to come help him sound smart. So I was his executive assistant. Um, he was briefing Obama nearly every morning, um, and he would also brief National Security Council meetings. And I um, essentially would write his talking points, making use of my very vast network. Um, and I got to be able to pull in um, information from the people I trusted across the intelligence community, really got to understand all the different parts of the intelligence community and how they play in and what the strengths of each portion are. And um, it was such an exciting time. And then we also stayed through the transition. So I got to stay there for the first six months or so of Trump administration, um, which is a whole different story for a different podcast. And we, um, um, and then from there, I got to meet a lot of um, DNI leaders and one of them asked me because I was an aerospace engineer and an analyst he said will you stay and help with an analysis of alternatives for um, the future of some of our imagery satellites and um, I was really excited at the prospect of getting back into space so um, I stayed for a year doing that really got to work a lot with um, different parts of the intelligence community got to re-engage with the Directorate of Science and Technology um, which is um, another directorate that I wanted to get to know a lot better within the agency um, and then after a year doing that and realizing that I could still be um, kind of an engineer, I went back to the agency and thought, you know what, I have expanded my horizon so much. I want to try something new and different. Um, and also in that time frame, we, um, our nanny moved which was a crisis mode. <laughs> and, um, and since I wasn't working on things that were, um, you know, imminent, I was working on what's our satellite system going to look like in 2030. Um, I thought, okay, well, let me work part-time. And my older son was then in first grade. And I remember that first teacher conference and the teacher said, oh, we've seen this huge growth in Jackson. You know, he's just reading immensely better and his math skills are off the charts. Um, you know, I don't know what this change in him is. My husband and I looked at each other. We were like, yeah, we know what that change is. <laughs> so, um, so we decided that it was probably a good idea for the family for me to stay part time for a little bit. So here I was coming back to the agency um, thinking that I should I should be at a certain level, but still wanting to be part-time um, and like trying to walk around talking to people saying like, what can I do? What, 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 how can I be useful? And um, again, 
um, mentors pointed me in the direction of um, some amazing leaders who were willing to take a chance on me. And um, I went to the Counterintelligence Mission Center um, and they created a position for me um, where I got to be the chief of targeting, the technical director, and um, and I got to do like some of the talent management stuff all in one. All in 32 hours a week. <laughs> um, but I learned so much in that role. I really learned about um, what other countries are doing to collect on us. Um, I learned about technologies that I had never heard of before. And, um, and really realizing how different mindset plays into the intelligence cycle. Um, and then after a few years of doing that, I got a phone call again. <laughs> and, um, and this time it was from the, that same boss who had, who had kind of been a, a sponsor and mentor for so many years, um, who had retired from government and was now working at Northrop Grumman. And, um, and he said, I just want you to come talk to my boss, who then was a, the chief strategy officer, um, and talk to her about the leadership development that we had done. In Rankac because he thought that that was a useful thing for Northrop. Um, so I went to talk to her and, and she was phenomenal. Um, and Northrop had a, a female CEO who was really neat, at, who was a, a great leader. And I, I really thought um, having been in counterintelligence and seeing what other countries were developing, I wanted to think about how I could help push technology into the agency because the pull of technology was difficult when you didn't know what else was really out there. Um, and uh, so when I was having the meeting with this chief strategy officer, she asked, you have this great background that would be perfect for Northrop. Why aren't you working here? And I was like, I, I have a job. <laughs> um, so she sent me off to think about what are things that I could do. And, um, and I decided, you know, there was a way that I could help her by helping to push that technology that an awesome company like Northrop has into the agency and into different parts of the intelligence community. And um, so she created that position for me, which was amazing. Um, and I decided to take the leap, um, try something new. I mean, what an amazing <laughs> like that is so incredible. And, and I think like one of the things that really strikes me is you had so many different varieties of jobs, right? You did talent development, you did analysis, you did operations, you did science and technology, you, were, you briefed, right? But all, like all of these roles in some way were kind of connected to your roots and connected to STEM, right? And I know you talk about this quite a lot, right? But what would you tell, you know, some of our listeners who might be interested in a career in STEM? Like, it seems like that can look many different ways, but what, what can a career in STEM look like in the IC? There are so many different ways that a STEM degree can manifest. Um, you know, you have your traditional, like, come in, be a program manager, like, be the Q from James Bond. Um, and, um, and, you know, we have data scientists and we have um, people who who code or do, you know, work on encryption. Um, we have but there's a special place for for those of us that I like to say um, don't want to be engineers anymore. <laughs> you know, like I I loved 
the way that I was taught to think. Um, I really believe that um, having an engineering mindset really gave me the, the skills to be a, a strong critical thinker. And as I was recruiting um, at universities, I love recruiting engineers because analysis is so much of that same process of stating your assumptions, testing different hypotheses, um, thinking about what are new ways, different outcomes that could happen. Um, and even the way that we write in the intelligence community is very formulaic. Um, you know, you start with your what, so what, and then you you have your points that support that. And, um, and so it was, it was, my sister, she always says, like, I can't believe that you write for a living because I was a terrible writer <laughs> in high school. <laughs> and in college, I never had to write other than a design document. Um, but, uh, but I picked it up pretty quickly. And, and it was, you know, in order to make very sophisticated um, technical concepts sound simple for policymakers who don't have a technical background, um, you really have to simplify your language, which, you know, so I, I use small words. <laughs> and, um, but, um, but I think that um, I found an outlet for myself because I love science, I love engineering, but I loved the broader applications. Um, so I wanted to see how you know, countries use technology and use um, weapons in, in new ways. Um, and, um, and I love being able to use my brain in a, an unusual way. I was, I mean, there are definitely those engineers that want to perfect something. And I think that there, like, even in the, in the, I see there are definitely people that can be an expert at a particular thing and really dig deep into those things. But I think there are also those people who can be kind of a jack of all trades um, and do a lot across different areas, but keeping that thread. So I'm glad that you heard that in my, my narrative because I mean, that was part of it is you have to think about while you're kind of going along that, that spiral of, do you have do you have a pole that you're holding on to, right? Where where um, you can you can thread that narrative of of what your career has been about. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, so I also know you mentioned in your story uh, as you were going through it some of the time that you spent working at the White House, and I know for some of our listeners they'd be incredibly interested in hearing what that experience was like for you, and if you have maybe a favorite story or two from your time there. Um, oh, I have so many stories from my time there. I, sh I should write a book because it was phenomenal. Um, I, I, still <laughs> I still say that um, it, was, it was one of the best jobs of my career. I mean, I was literally at the pointy end of the spear. Um, you know, I like to say at the agency, we kind of have two spears, right? We have the pointy end of the spear where we are focused on on collection of intelligence um, and and you can find yourself somewhere on that sphere. But we also have the sphere of, of providing that intelligence to our president. Um, and the CIA is focused on providing intelligence to the president and um, to be able to help decide what got, what was walked into the Oval every morning um, was just such an 
honor and a challenge. And it was an amazing experience. I felt like every morning um, I would come in thinking about how I was going to outsmart President Obama and Susan Rice every day. <laughs> and they, these are, you know, two of our nation's most incredible leaders um, who were so well read and so well, um, well, have their own networks um, to, and to think about like, how can I provide value to them? Because that's the whole point, right? They're busy people and you don't want to waste their time. They have plenty of other things to do. So trying to figure out what unique story could I bring to the table? Um, and uh, I will say, I also became really good at, at um, cocktail parties because I suddenly learned the world. Um, I, I got pulled out of my, you know, missile and space background and had to learn um, What's the difference between Sunnis and Shias? And um, what is a, you know, what's a hard landing versus a soft landing in China going to mean? And, um, you know, things that I never thought I would be able to talk about. And uh, I remember a really fun story was there was a National Security Council meeting. So this is all the secretaries of um, of the different cabinet members and um, the president meeting on a on in this particular case ISIS. And um, I remember we were working on the talking points for it. And there was a, a line that was kind of buried in the notes about how um, ISIS was suffering in Syria. And um, because of that, they were moving more resources, money and people into their external operations. And so I put that made that more upfront and had, I forget the phrasing, but had like a little tagline about it. Um, and it, and so the DD and I, he went in and he briefed that to the National Security Council. And then Obama held a press conference right after the National Security Council. We're watching it on, on TV. And, um, and he said my line. And I was like, oh my God, the president <laughs> just said my words. <laughs> um, so that, that was really cool. That was, I mean, like, talk about impact. And that's your goal as an analyst is to have that kind of impact, to know that your words are helping the, the president of the United States really understand all the things that he needs to understand when making policy for the safety of our country. Um, I, I had a boss that um, would talk about it at recruitment events. He would say, if the idea of writing for the president doesn't get you jazzed, this is not the job for you because you have to go through 15 levels of review. Um, and uh, But it still does, that idea that the president read my words. Um, and I have lots of stories from my career, but you know, getting feedback from the president of my words and, and getting feedback of a decision was made because of the things that we wrote about. Um, and that just it makes me feel good as an American. Um, I have another really funny story um that that might relate to my my code name i know it's coming katie <laughs> um but so um the wd and i was now the acting dni we went on a tour to london um to talk to our counterparts over there to say okay we transition of government um you know everything's gonna be we're still friends we're still cooperating like we change governments every four to eight years folks it's gonna be okay <laughs> and um i'm sitting at a table with um 
the acting DNI, um, the chief of station, the ambassador, and on the other side of the table are several people from a um, an investment bank in London. And there's gorgeous views of the London skyline behind us. We're on those like 50th floor or something, and um, and then we're. T- uh, the Action D and I had a question about um, developing markets, and they said, "Oh, you know, let me let me bring in our developing markets expert." So this um, young Bengali woman walks in, and I'm kind of looking at her, and she's kind of staring at me, and we're both kind of like, "Do we know each other, or are we just so surprised to see somebody that looks like us in this room?" <laughs> because. I mean, like in my career, it's always kind of been me and a bunch of old white dudes. <laughs> but, um, and then, you know, she's talking and um, and then suddenly, you know, it dawns on me and I was like, Lupin. And and she goes, Cookie, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> All of their heads turn to me and they're like, Cookie? <laughs> Um, Cookie is my um, family nickname, Cookie Monster. I really like cookies. I still love cookies. <laughs> and we had known each other as children. And we were apparently, we were supposed to have dinner a couple nights later. We hadn't seen each other in like 10 years. Um, but yes, now I've been outed to a lot of leaders in our government about how my, my nickname is Cookie. And um, yeah, they still like to bring that up whenever they see me. It's great. <laughs> That is so amazing. And I think pretty universally, you know, for those who know you well, you just bring this incredible sense of levity to like how you in the same breath can say like missiles in space and ISIS uh, and then also cookie. <laughs> it's really amazing. And I think something that only you can do. Um, so, you know, switching gears a little bit, you know, why you, you talked a little bit about why you decided to leave government after almost a couple decades, right? I'm curious if you would ever go back to the government side. 100%. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was leaving government, I, um, it was, it was a hard decision because that was all I knew. And I didn't know what I could do on the outside. I didn't know what my skill sets were. Like I knew the agency very well. Um, I knew what to do to raise the ranks in the agency. Should I choose to go that path? Or I, I knew what different jobs I would still want to do there. But I also knew that I had to take a leap of faith and, um, and there was, I had had several mentors um, that talked about the utility of seeing what's an industry and um, and being able to bring that back. Um, And back in the day, we used to have some of these like exchange programs and fellowships. And I think we're, we're still working on it, but really being immersed at Northrop and um, getting to meet so many of their amazing engineers um, and the, like phenomenal technologies that they work on um, and, and, and to realize that I could still speak engineer. That was a big thing for me. You know, um, even when I was working on the AOA, I remember the analysis of alternatives. I remember thinking like, oh my God, I'm with all these like really, really smart engineers and program managers who've been doing this for so long and I haven't done space in forever. Um, but my boss said, but you know how to ask the right questions. Um, and it took me a while to figure that out. There were times where I would think, 
I, and both in that position and at Northrop, I would think, do I not understand this because I'm so out of it? Or do I not understand this because it's not clear? Mm-hmm. And it took me a little bit to say, no, I don't understand this because it's not clear. And oftentimes if I asked the question, it was because either they had it wrong or they were not explaining it in the proper way. And, um, and other people had the same question. So, it, it, you know, it took a lot of confidence to, <laughs> to be able to, to do that. Um, but, um, but I learned that I could be a manager of, of engineers. And um, while I didn't have to remember, you know, my calculus and how to code, um, I, I, um, I at least knew enough to, to ask the tough questions. And, um, and one thing that industry does not know is they don't know how to speak mission in many parts, right? They don't fully understand how their capabilities could be used, not just by this one part of the intelligence community, but by all these other areas. And to make those connections um, was just really fulfilling to say, okay, like I'm helping mission in a, in a different way. Um, and I really, it stretched my skill sets. And, um, and I'm, I was, I'm really glad that I made that jump. And um, there are other things that I would love to do. Like I'd love to um, work more in kind of like an emerging tech kind of arena. Um, I, um, I really want to learn more about, you know, the emergence of quantum and AI. Um, but I also learned a lot about acquisition and culture and how that plays into how the government can also make it easier to incorporate some of these newer technologies that are going to keep us competitive with our ad- adversaries. Um, you know, we cannot be complacent. We have to keep pushing. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I completely agree. And and I also think, you know, one thing that has really resonated, and I know it will resonate with many of our listeners as well about your story, is that you have done all of these amazing things. Like, you have lived 10 lives, practically, uh, while also just being an incredible mother, right? And I know that was such a key part of your story. How, you know, how have you found your way as a working mom, right? And and are your, are your boys also budding iron butterflies? Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, I kind of mentioned a couple places where um, I had managers that um, that were able to help me kind of navigate my career so that I could spend a little bit more time at key times in my kids development. Um, You know, with your first kid and like I couldn't imagine ever leaving him. So being able to work on something that wasn't like. PDD or child, you know, um, was really, was really nice. Um, and then being able to, to have managers that were willing to have me um, lead at a department level, but still be part-time so that I could be there at pickup and I could do the homework with them. Um, and actually, I, I just recently left Northrop um, uh, because, um, well, a variety of reasons. Um, but I, you know, one of the things is I wanted to focus a little bit more on my family, um, dealing with um, some changes that are happening with within my little family unit and my parents. And it just seemed like a good time for me to jump out and reflect and think about um, ways that I can help other women, um, especially women, women of color, kind of get into STEM careers and um, national security careers and, and try to make that path easier. Because um, while I've had some incredible mentors and managers, you know, it's, it's, 
I will fully say it hasn't been a cakewalk. And I don't want to say that is You know, I've definitely had um, bosses or um, not necessarily bosses, but like been told later, like, oh yeah, you were considered for that for that position, but we knew you didn't want to because you had small kids. And I was like, but uh, what? Like, <laughs> I might have wanted to take on that particular thing, and it would have been nice just to know that I was in consideration. Um, so I also want to like not only want to inspire those women, but I also want to help bosses think about how can I make my environment, how can I make my team or my office or, or agency more hospitable to people that are different um, and, um, and make that easier. Um, so my little baby iron butterflies, um, <laughs> I definitely, so it's hysterical. I remember when um, my older one was like, like four or five and we had gotten him this like racetrack um, where there were like, there was a red car and a blue car racing against each other. And um, he was going to race with my brother-in-law. And I saw him like pulling the metal out of the bottom of the blue car. And I was like, Jackson, what are you doing? And he goes, that's how the cars go on the track. I'm making uncle's car go slower. Oh my like, <laughs> action, my little baby saboteur. Incredible. <laughs> like you know, already know how to think deviously. <laughs> um, and then it's been awesome because, you know, I have always been, I'm, I've always been overt. I do a lot of recruiting. I go talk to um, my son's school about working at the agency. And um, and so, um, and, and he, like there are other agency and Intel community kids that are, have been in his classes and they don't know what their parents do. And the parents are always like, how come you get to be cool? I always hear about how Jackson's mom is so awesome. She's a spy mom. And like, I'm the one who actually goes in the field and collects the information. And I'm like, yeah, sorry. That is, that is so awesome. I, and I also want to say too, I mean, I know it takes just a special kind of strength to step away as well. And so I just can't wait to see what's next for you and what you do at this time. I'm, I'm really excited. And I think that um, if there's anything that I've learned is that I have a unique skill set. And just because I'm taking some time off to focus on me and to focus on my family doesn't mean that I can't come back in. Um, I think that there's going to be plenty of interesting jobs out there. Um, so I'm really going to use this time to focus and think about um, that that intersection of what I'm really good at and what the world needs um, and find that sweet spot for me. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, Yannicky, we have come to the end. <laughs> and as you know, and as you've been waiting for, uh, we end each of our episodes with the same question. And in keeping with the name of this podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, uh, what would it be and why? Okay, so I was, I'm changing it up, Katie, because I was going to go with um, Wicked Cookie, which was, Wicked was was my code name, because um, my maiden name was Wickrama, and I loved it, because that, like, you know, I always kind of had a mischievous streak, so I loved being <laughs> Wicked, <laughs> um, and Cookie, because you heard the story, but 
as I was reflecting about like who I am as a person and what I want my kids to remember about me, um, I think my code name has got to be Spy Mom. Um, like I love that that I walk in the halls of the elementary school and the little girl whispers, "That's the Spy Mom." <laughs> Um, um, you know, and like, I, I joke with some of my friends, but I really do. Like whenever I go to my kid's school to do a talk, I always like dress up a little bit, put on some makeup because I want girls to see that, you know, scientists and engineers are not Albert Einstein, like crazy people. Like you can still look cute and go to, go to work. And, um, you know, I remember talking to somebody saying like, Oh, I just would never work in a, in be an engineer because I love wearing my heels every day. And I'm like, dude, I wear heels every day. You don't have to work in a factory to be an engineer. <laughs> Actually I have two kids that don't wear heels every day anymore, but, <laughs> but, um, but you know, like, I, I want the world to see that people in national security and people in with STEM backgrounds don't look like any particular thing. You can be whoever you want to be and do all these great things. So I absolutely, I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that. And I think, you know, as, as you know, AWIC was built as a community of professionals and people, right? I mean, they're yeah. you cannot separate the two. And so what I love about your film is that it captures both of those. So, um, so Yannicki, it's been just so amazing chatting with you. This time has absolutely flown. Thank you so much for just sharing your time today and just those special pieces of your own personal and professional life and your just incredible path um, over the last almost 20 years. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I when you when when you asked me to do this, I was like, me? Who wants to hear from me? But it's it's just it's so exciting. I feel like I've truly made it, Katie. <laughs> well, I just can't wait to read the book. That's all I'm saying. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the Amazing Women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, you can email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And lastly, we want to thank Megan Jaffer, Amanda Young, Liz Herndon, and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.